Hi, I'm John Broderick, and I'm delighted you're listening to American Sunshine. Hi, I'm Jay Lucas, and welcome to American Sunshine, the podcast, uh, where we talk about uh, inspirational stories, um, the power of the human spirit, and the revitalization of all our great towns and communities of, across America. And I'm delighted uh, today to be joined by a good friend and um, really one of the most respected uh, people in New Hampshire and beyond, uh, who's done an incredible job, I think, taking on a, a very, very important task. Uh, his career is distinguished in so many ways, a uh, highly respected lawyer here in New Hampshire, uh, Chief Justice of our Supreme Court, uh, also Dean and President of our University of New Hampshire Law School, and um, now taking on a task over the last number of years where raising awareness about mental health, uh, an issue that has been, had a stigma, been kind of a taboo to talk about. And I want to welcome uh, my really good friend, uh, John Broderick. Welcome, John. Jay, thank you. It's uh, really a pleasure to be with you. Well, you know, you have done so much in your career. And, um, you know, I'd love to uh, kind of jump right into uh, the important work that you're doing now. And, and um, you know, you and I had a recent conversation about growing up years ago versus what it is today and the value of community. And, um, and you've been to our, our, my hometown of Newport, New Hampshire. And uh, you know what it's like to grow up in a place where family and uh, community are so darn important. I'd love to just kind of get your, your impressions of the, how it was before, how it is today, and how it's maybe wrecking havoc on um, mental health for the next generation and really for all of us. Sure, Jay, I, I'd be happy to do it. First of all, it's an honor to be with you and thank you for taking on this story. Uh, just very briefly for listeners, uh, I've spent the last five years of my life traveling mostly in Northern New England. Uh, I've been to four states. I've spoken now to 110,000, 120,000 people. I've been to 250 middle schools and high schools, uh, speaking to 90,000 kids. So um, I have hugged more kids, Jay, who are suffering emotionally than probably anyone in New England over that time. Well, and John, <laughs> just to, to jump in right there, I would bet there's no one in America who can say what you just said about the number of people that they have touched individually talking about mental health. I, I, I would be staggered to find if there's anyone else who's done that. Well, I, there may not be, Jay. Uh, and, and so that I don't sound too righteous, uh, I'm a baby boomer and I didn't know much about mental health and it just wasn't talked about. It's still not talked about enough today, but it was not talked about at all when I was younger and for much of my adult life. And, I had two sons, and my oldest son, who was then 13, was afflicted with a mental health problem, which my wife and I didn't see for what it was, and which he didn't understand. He thought it was just him. And it got worse over time. And then when we saw the problem, we saw alcohol, which was uh, all we saw. It's not what we should have seen exclusively. And we made mistakes. I made mistakes, and I regret those. Uh, it took my family, when I was on the Supreme Court, a very public journey 
Uh, it took me to the ICU. It took my son, master's educated, decent, smart, uh, talented to the state prison. And so it was quite a story here, as tragic as it was. And be, really because of my son's courage and my wife's strength uh, and the skill of a lot of good people and the grace of God, uh, my family healed and came through it. But as a baby boomer, of course, I didn't do anything. I didn't talk about it. But people would talk to me at gas stations and grocery stores. They had read it and recognized my family's story and opened up about their own. And it was really eye-opening. But I didn't do much until five years ago. I got involved in a mental health awareness campaign. I wasn't bright enough to create it, but I was smart enough to understand its value. And it was a campaign to let people know the five most common signs of mental illness. And we launched it in New Hampshire at the State House on a Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, the speaker said, you can use the chamber, John. It's going to be empty. And I thought, well, we probably won't get 20 people here. It's a Monday. Sure. And, and, and mental health, you wouldn't necessarily think that you wouldn't have any way to expect many people. I wouldn't. And we got 425 people okay, who showed up at 10 in the morning. And um, it was eye-opening to me and inspiring to me. And since that time, I've spoken about 580 times now in four states. Uh, sometimes to national audiences on Zoom, one of the great features of Zoom, uh, but mostly I speak in person and mostly to young people, grades 6 through 12. And I wish everyone listening could be with me on those mornings. Uh, one in five adolescents in our country has a mental health problem. One in five adults does too. We don't have a mental health system in the United States of America. We don't. And it's still not a topic that people are comfortable with. The one thing I will say, Jay, and the reason I do have hope, I love this generation of young people. I really do. They're smarter than I was and more streetwise than I was. But they're also less judgmental than my generation was. And so when I go to schools and share my family story and my own ignorance uh, and what I've learned and seen, the kids who come up to me in the most impersonal places like gyms and auditoriums and share the most personal stories in their own life. Uh, it, it has just fueled my energy to start a different conversation around mental health. And the goal of it is so that people can have that awkward conversation so that it no longer seems awkward. And then as a nation, we might say, why don't we have a system to provide help. That's that's my goal. And I know I'm only one person. I can't do it by myself. But opportunities like you're giving me today, I appreciate. Well, you know, you are doing it pretty much by yourself and you're making a huge difference. Um, the listener just, I've got to share this because it, it really had a huge impact on me. But um, John was kind enough to drive up to Newport one evening. And um, we got together the Newport Sunshine Initiative monthly meeting. And I think we must have had somewhere between 80 and 100 people all gathered together in a beautiful old mill building in Newport. And we had several speakers on the agenda. And when John got up to speak and talk about mental health, you know, I hadn't seen the speech before and I hadn't, I hadn't seen you deliver this, John. But I was absolutely, the, 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 uh, everyone in the room, that you could have heard a pin drop. 
it was it was as if you were embarking on territory that no one had ever gone into before no one really knew what that journey was going to be like and i think there's a lot of anxiety in the room but there was also rapt attention like finally somebody is talking about this and i remember you gave out these cards i think they're react cards yeah. And I might just talk. Yeah, it's fantastic. The five signs. Oh my gosh, yeah. um, it, it was it was it was an eye-opening experience for me. At just the power of being able to open up the Pandora box and have the conversation. You know, um, it, it it has been like that in so many places, and it's not me. I mean, I know that, but it is the topic. And young people, especially young people, you know, one in five adolescents has a mental health problem. Uh, a lot of it, I think, not all of it by any means, a lot of it is cultural and social. Uh, this generation is under pressures that mine wasn't. Uh, their parents are under pressures that my parents did experience too. Uh, the level of anxiety and depression among young people in the United States is epidemic. And you don't have to take my word for it. If you look at the Youth First Behavioral Surveys and national data from the CDC, in 2019, they give these uh, anonymous questionnaires to high school students across the country. 70 high schools in New Hampshire had their students take it. The national averages are as follows. And it's alarming to me, but what's most alarming is very few people know this or do much about it. 42% of high school girls in the United States pre-pandemic were depressed. And the question doesn't say, are you depressed? It said, have you felt sad or hopeless for two consecutive weeks or longer in wow. the last 12 months such that you haven't been able to engage in everyday activity? 25% of high school girls in America 2019 have given serious consideration, that's the question, to ending their own lives. What's that number again, John? 25%. 20, so one in four is given serious con uh, consideration to ending their own lives. That's just astounding. 15% have made plans to kill themselves. Last year in our state, New Hampshire, which is a beautiful place, 8.4%, 8.4% of high school girls attempted suicide. In the state of Maine, it's 10% in 2019. And so I believe firmly that unless and until we start listening to these young people who talk to me, someone they don't know, but whom they know won't judge them or shame them or blame them, Jay. Until we start listening and reacting to it. Uh, a lot of the kids I see as young as middle school are on their iPhones five to seven hours a day. The average, by the way, is nine hours. 80% uh, of kids in America get less than eight hours of sleep a night. 65% of them go to school one or more mornings a week without any breakfast. And so it's not shocking. Half of young people do not feel they are important in their communities. And so as I look at what you've been doing in Newport, which I so admire, I've told you that, uh, it's exactly what we need to be doing. Uh, I grew up in a world that was eyeball to eyeball, and I'm not an anti-tech guy. I have an iPad and an iPhone. I'm not pretending I'm terrific, but I'm <laughs> conversant on technology. Uh, but I remember a world where one-on-one -on -one was pretty important. Uh, 
kids are growing up in a virtual world that parents don't see it. The parents are living in their own virtual world increasingly, and I understand the pressures they're under. But what I think is happening is that we are losing a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of self-importance in a meaningful way. And what you've been doing in Newport, the whole Sunshine Project, which I so admire, it's exactly what I think is eating a lot of these young people. And you're kind of attacking the problem. Well, John, what I was going to say is that um, one of the observations that you made in our conversation the other evening was that this generation is growing up with a different experience in interpersonal ways. In other words, um, because they have the devices, and we all have devices now, that that old, if we go back a number of years before it was all part of our everyday lives, we would look each other in the eye, we'd be, uh, we'd have dinner together, and we'd have a conversation. And now you might see, I think you told me a story about a family that got together for dinner, and all four or five of them were on their phones, uh, looking at their devices, with no conversation. My wife pointed them out to me, we were out to dinner before the pandemic, mother, father, three daughters, I think, the oldest daughter was about 13. My wife said, look at that family. And they sat down, and we were there for another 15 minutes. And not one of them spoke. It was just stunning. And I'm a middle-class kid, and I didn't go out that often to dinner with my parents. But when we did, it was an event. And I, my mother and father, and my parents would talk to each other. I was always interested in what adults said to other adults. And their friends would come over to the table. And they talked to my sister and myself about school and the town. I used to breathe in social, emotional. I knew all my neighbors. Uh, we had family dinners in my house every night. They weren't five-star dinners, but they were great dinners. Uh, I, I had unstructured time. I played with my friends. Uh, kids John, today, they're, they're much John, they're, Well, they're, they're so programmed. They're, there's so many. Yeah. Pro- so I, I was also struck by this notion that, and I remember this growing up, that if we wanted to go play a game of baseball or we wanted to do whatever we were going to do for the day, we had to go organize that ourselves. And it might be baseball in the summer and a, and a tackle football game in the fall and try to find a place to play basketball or something in the winter time. And, but you're on your own and you, and you, had, to, you had to organize it. You had to say, well, who wants to play today? And, and you're kind of going through that socialization process that, uh, that, you know, gee, think about the pressures of kids today. They're, if they're particularly good at a sport, maybe early on, they become specialists and then they get on the travel team and they're, and they're always trying to, I think, as you said, catch that next train or make sure the train doesn't leave the station without them. It's funny. I talked to a young man who was a co-captain of his varsity hockey team in a very upper middle-class town in New Jersey. And I said, what's your life like? He said, let me tell you what it's like. He said, I feel like I'm running to chase a train every day. I didn't put the tracks down. I don't even know where the train's going. I don't know who the conductor or the engineer might be, but I know I'm expected to get on that train and move as far forward as I can. Now, that wasn't my life. And, and it's not just the good old days. Uh, there was some real value to having to find your way. Uh, I think today, and it's not because parents are not good parents. I'm not saying that. Uh, and they have a lot of pressures and less time themselves. But there's something to be said for social, emotional growth, learning how to fail, learning how to get up again. And parents are so concerned that their kids will fall behind. 
So the helicopter parent existed. Now we have the snowplow parent. My child will have no obstacle. So a lot of the kids, Jay, that I hug in school gyms and auditoriums are 15 or 16 or 17 years old chronologically. Emotionally, they're 11 or 12 or 13. Mm. They don't know how to deal with adversity a lot of them. And not that I had a, a program in it, but I, I had a life that made it necessary. Yes. Yes. And so, so picture this. So, so now I know you've spoken at so many high schools and, and schools around New Hampshire and beyond. And so you, you, you give your speech and then at the end, uh, as I understand it, students come up and want to talk to you and they, and maybe for a long time, actually many, many students and they share personal stories with you. What's that like? What, what, what are they expressing? What is, give us some examples of kind of what sure. you see in those. Some of the kids that come out to me, Jay, will say, with what eyes usually, thanks for sticking up for kids like me. Thanks for talking about it. My parents don't believe in mental health problems. Um, sometimes they almost can't speak. I had one girl come up at a private school. She literally couldn't talk for the first minute. And then she said, I have so many expectations on my shoulders. I've had kids as young as the sixth grade who have tried to kill themselves or want to. I made a picky promise with a sixth grade girl. She thought I was cool, but I knew what that was. Her hand dwarfed, was dwarfed by mine, and I hugged her and I said, she wanted to kill herself. I believed her. And I said, oh my goodness, that's not who you are. We're not doing that. That's what's bothering who you are. So anyway, I saw her. I was, would have seen someone in the school before I left, but I saw her in the lunchroom and she pinky promised that she would see a counselor that day and tell them what she told me. And so lo and behold, she came up to me with a woman and she said, do you remember me? You know, kids, like I'd seen her an hour earlier. Sure. I said, of course I remember you. She said, well, you and I made a pinky promise. Do you remember that? I said, I do. You can't break those promises. So I know that. She said, this woman is a counselor. I'm going to see her today. And I just hugged her. And she ran to her lunch table. And the counselor said, we usually know who the kids are who are having problems. We, we didn't know about her. She stopped me in the stairwell. She said she promised that judge that she would see someone today. So she's going to come see me. And when I got home, Jay, I said to my wife, could I have had a more important conversation that day with anybody on the planet Earth than the little sixth grader I didn't know. And all I said in her gymnasium that day was, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to pretend you're okay. You should talk about it. And she had the courage to come up and see me. That happens a lot. It's well, not humor, but it is this topic. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's the topic, but I think there's also something magic about what you're doing, John. There's something about the way you open up the conversation that make people feel safe to have that conversation with you. I, th I think there is some magic there. Well, you're nice to say it. I, I will say this, Jay, and I mean this sincerely. I, as you pointed out at the beginning, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. Looks like I can't hold a job. Actually, <laughs> I've had a lot of them, but, uh, and I've been proud of it. But the work I've been doing the last five years is the most important work I've done in my entire professional life. And to underscore all of this, 
healthy kids who confide in me are getting no mental health help anywhere. And we do not have, we do not have a mental health system in the United States of America, 2021. It was like that when I was a kid for breast cancer yep. and AIDS and cancer generally. We've come such a distance, which is all good. We've got so much further to go with mental health. And I believe, Jay, until we are finally willing to say publicly, my mother, my father, my cousin, my sister, myself, and we can't find help. Until we take that conversation public, we'll never fix it. Well, I, I think you're so you're so right about that. Let me let me sort of throw you a a, a good sort of curveball here that I, I'd be kind of an interesting question because something you just said a few minutes ago piqued my curiosity about that little girl and she brought the woman the counselor over and, met, and the counselor said usually we we know the the kids who are having problems. I, I wonder do you, do you think that's accurate? Do you think that they really do know, or are there many people they they just don't really who hide it so well that they don't know that? I, I think the counselors are pretty good, but you know there might be one counselor for 400 kids or 500 kids. So yeah, in reality, uh, no. Uh, I spoke one day at a private school, a very well-respected private school, early along in the campaign. And I would love to ask, but of course I never do. The senior boy who introduced me that day to speak to his classmates, well over 500 of them, it's one of the best public schools in America. He asked this question when I finished speaking. If there's anyone in this auditorium this morning, he said, who has a mental health problem or someone you love has a mental health problem, would you stand up? And I thought, oh no one's going to stand up. No, nobody, right? Nobody. And there were faculty there. This is a prestigious school. I would say after about 20, 25 seconds of the 500 plus kids there, 500 of them were standing up. It oh was stunning. And I told that story without giving the school's name to a public high school in New Hampshire. I was telling them that this young man asked his classmates. I wasn't asking these kids in the public school. And when I told them what this young man had asked his classmates, they started standing up in that oh, public spontaneously? school. Spontaneously? Spontaneously. Yeah. And almost everyone was standing. And I thought it's hiding in plain sight. Treatment works. Why are we delaying it another day? And so if I transition here to um, maybe thinking about this, how you think about the solution, you're, you're closer to this than anybody, probably anybody. Um, and what do you think the key elements are? Like you said, we don't have a system. That's part of it for sure. Um, and how do we even get started on the track to getting well, to a solution? Let, let, me, let me give you an example. This is from the wisdom of an eighth grade girl. Uh, and they're pretty smart, by the way. I was having lunch with eight of her friends. Uh, you can imagine how thrilled they were to have lunch with yoga. So I said to them, hey, I hear your generation is stressed. Oh, they said, we are so stressed. I don't remember that when I was in the eighth grade. I remember being afraid of the math test. That would get my attention. <laughs> that always stressed me, but the rest of life didn't seem too terrifying. So I said, why are you so stressed? She said, I'll tell you why we're stressed. We're always trying to accomplish the next thing. Mm. So we'll be eligible for the thing after that. Mm. My answer is, could we all take the pressure off these kids? Uh, I did okay in my life. 
I had a 12-year childhood. I had an overprotective mother who today would look like she was neglecting her family. <laughs> I remember coming home when the streetlights were on. I grew up in a world where she couldn't call me nine times a day. Uh, and I just think these kids need to be treated as children. They need time to identify who they are and what they like. They need to make mistakes and they need to know that's okay. Now, there are a lot of reasons for mental health problems and I'm not suggesting that covers the waterfront, but a lot of the anxiety and depression, which are very common, epidemic, this is all before COVID, it's largely driven by externalities. It's driven by this sense of perfection. I talked to a Dartmouth student, really bright woman recently, and they had three suicides on the Dartmouth campus, three freshmen. And she, this girl was trying to do something about that, I admire, really smart kid. I said to her, how many colleges did you apply to? She's at Dartmouth, so she's pretty bright. She said, I applied to 24. Yeah, that five sounds right, them, no. Five of them were in Canada. She said, how many did you apply to? I said, I applied to three. She said, why did you apply to so few? I said, because my mother would have said, we can't afford more than That's right, it costs money. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, my mother said, pick a school you're going to do, pick a school you hope you're going to do, and pick one on a good day with a strong tailwind, you might make it to. <laughs> and that was my life. I asked a girl at a prep school one day, junior, what college do you want to go to? Her answer was, my mother wants me to go to Berkeley. I didn't ask her that, and I didn't embarrass her either, but she didn't even hear what she said. Sure. We need to take the foot off the gas, encourage young people. These kids are going to be fine if we let them grow up and not let them get lost every day in a virtual jungle, which is where they're spending their life. We have perfected technology, okay? and I'm not anti-tech, believe me, but we've perfected social media so that 15-year-old kids can now be raised by 15-year-old kids. That's what I worry about. Well, you know, one, one, one small effort that I'm very proud of, actually, that's very tangible, is uh, my son Gates, who is a, was a state representative legislator representing Sunapee and Croydon. Uh, in this, not the, in the most, in the, um, not the most recent legislative session, but the one before that in 18, 19, 20, was able to introduce and help pass a bill to help uh, school teachers and school personnel recognize these um, signs of teen suicide and prevent teen suicide. Yeah, very important. It, it just, and, and it was signed into law. And um, it's one small step. But it's a, it's a, it's one that I'm proud of. But it, it's so much more than that is required. It, it's, it's first of all, congratulations to him. That will save lives. That will save lives. Uh, let, let me give you this step. From two, this is the Center for Disease Control. From 2007 to 2017, during that 10-year window pre-pandemic, the rate of suicide for people ages 10 to 24 increased 56 percent. 56%. And most of the people with a mental health problem uh, are not going to take their own life, but they will have a diminished life. It doesn't just go away like a rainstorm. And what I want to do is to embrace the challenges that not just young people, but all of us are facing. And if people say to you and mean it, Jay, how are you doing? It's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay to pretend you're okay. Well, let's talk about it. You know, help's available. 
why are we so reluctant? Why are we so ashamed? Young people want that conversation. And God love your son. I mean, he's, he, he gets that piece. He's, he's acting. This generation will fix it. I'm just trying to hasten the change. Well, yeah, and he's, he is a Dartmouth graduate, and he has actually lost classmates uh, at Dartmouth to exactly the uh, to suicide. Um, so, John, as, as we as we kind of wrap on this conversation, yes. I wonder what you'd like to leave our audience at American Sunshine, the, the message that I know it's I love what you say. It's it's OK not to be OK. Where, where do you where do you see this? And maybe just a word on what you think the pandemic is, uh, the effect of the pandemic on where we are right now. The pandemic has made uh, made mental health in America much worse. It's put a lot of people who are suffering to extreme suffering. A lot of people who didn't have mental health issues or didn't see them in others are now experiencing them or seeing them. So in an odd way, uh, there are not many silver linings in a pandemic. But as it relates to mental health, I do think the mainstream media today is covering it more, talking about it more. Uh, I spoke recently at the VA in Manchester uh, to young veterans. Uh, it's a major problem among young people. It's a major problem among seniors. And so I'm just saying to people, what are we afraid of? What is it we're afraid of? Uh, my mother used to whisper cancer. No one said the word breast, no doubt, when I was a child. Now we say breast cancer. Everyone listening to this podcast knows the color for breast cancer awareness. That's a good thing. But if I said to most people, what's the color for mental health? They would say it has a color. In fact, the color is green. And uh, my wife always says if Kermit the Frog would only help out. He could be the lead sponsor. <laughs> it's not easy being great. And, <laughs> and I, I said, that. I think someone stole that, Patty, but it would be phenomenal because young people would know who Kermit the Frog is and people my age would too. And if, if, if that were the slogan for mental health awareness, it's not easy being great, that might start to change the culture in this country. And people could smile, but they would learn about it too. John, I love that. It's not easy being green. <laughs> um, well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. And I can't think of a more important topic. And I can't be I can't think of being any more proud of the work that you're doing on behalf of so many, so many individuals in our state and across the nation. So thank you very much, John. Jay, thank you. Keep up the work you're doing in Newport and beyond. Building community is the best antidote to what I'm seeing. Well, onward and upward, and we're going to try to stay positive and do as many uh, good things for the community as we can and, uh, and highlight your great work on mental health. But thank you very much, John. Great, thanks. My, my pleasure to be with you. Thank you.